I've had the most interesting job in Arkansas <laughs> for over 40 years uh, because of the, the uh, first, the nature of the job, the sport, the uh, thrill of, of victory and the agony of defeat. Welcome to the Be Epic Podcast, brought to you by the Sam M. Walton College of Business at the University of Arkansas. I'm your host, Brent Williams. Together, we'll explore the dynamic landscape of business and uncover the strategies, insights, and stories that drive business today. Well, today I have with me Eric Jackson. <laughs> Eric is Senior Vice President of Oakline, but what we're talking about today is that he is a member of the 2024 Arkansas Business Hall of Fame. And so, Eric, uh, I should start with just a big congratulations. Thank you, and, and uh, a big surprise. So, uh, yeah, didn't see this coming. Well, I, I can attest to that it was a surprise. I got, to, I got the opportunity to surprise you uh, at Oakland, and what, what fun to get to hear some of your story, meet your wife, meet some of your coworkers. It, it, that was a, a fun day. Well, the, the, the backstory to that is is uh, longtime Oakland lawyer and friend, Skip Ebel, said that you were going to be in town. He was taking you around. He said, do you think we could do a lunch at Oakland? I said, sure, be glad to. I'd like to meet him. And my wife left early. She said, I'm, I'm going to exercise or the spa or someplace. So I got out there, ran into Lou Sella, and he said, are you having lunch with Skip? And I said, yeah. He said, well, let's go on up. I think Skip's here. And I said, fine. So we walk into the Bugler, which was closed at that particular time of the day. And because of the way the windows are in the background, all I could see are silhouettes. Except I see my wife, and I'm going, what in the world is Linda doing here? I guess she ran into Skip, and Skip said, come on and have lunch. But there's like, I can see there's like 10 or 12 heads. And had no idea. I mean, totally set up by Skip Evil. Well, he did do a great job, and we had a lot of fun, and, and you were clearly surprised. Uh, well, uh, I think, um, one, it's, it's going to be a great evening on February the, the 16th, and we're looking forward to it. But I'd like, I'd like for everyone to hear a little bit more about your story. Um, so grew up in grew up in Hot Springs, right? Grew up in Hot Springs. Uh, you know, at that time, you had to be 16 to get into the races, and since I was the wimpiest kid in my class, uh, it took me forever. All the guys had gotten in and were bragging about it. All the girls had gotten in and were bragging about it. Every time I tried, they'd throw me back out. Uh, but that was my introduction to Oaklawn, and uh, from there, it, it really was just an accidental career. <laughs> but I've told everybody, and, and I'm sincere about this, I've had the most interesting job in Arkansas <laughs> for over 40 years uh, because of the, the uh, first, the nature of the job, the sport, the uh, thrill of, of victory and the agony of defeat. <laughs> and it's a, a major tourism draw, major taxpayer, major employer. And, uh, it, you know, quite frankly, the last 25 years, it's been like the perils of Pauline. <laughs> Nearly went out of business in the 90s and picked ourselves up off the mat, and now we're one of the top racing centers in, in America and one of the top uh, gaming centers in the South. Yeah. 
you, you know, I, I know you didn't do this alone, uh, but, but there's a lot I've read out there that really credits you or at least largely credits you with uh, really some innovation uh, that, that did save Oakland, I think. Well, you know, success has many fathers and failure is an orphan and uh, there can be a, a thin line between something working and you're ending up looking really stupid. But we were fortunate. Um, you know, the first uh, challenge to our survival came from Texas and Oklahoma when they put in brand new racetracks. And that's where we were drawing most of our racing crowd from. And not only new racetracks, but the tax rate in those two states was one-sixth what it was in Arkansas. Hmm. So we really could not compete when it came to purses. And we came up with something called full card simulcasting, merged pool wagering. Uh, did that with Chicago probably in 1990, and, and it worked. Hmm. And we were so busy congratulating ourselves and patting ourselves on the back that we didn't notice that Mississippi was putting in casinos. Hmm. And uh, we looked up one day, Mississippi had casinos, and then Missouri did, and then Louisiana did, and then Oklahoma did. And at that point, we realized that Arkansas was surrounded by more casinos than any state in America, and still is. Hmm. And at that point, most everybody was predicting Oakland wasn't going to make it. But we came up with an electronic wagering product, historic racing, instant racing. We were able to get a patent. Um, didn't know if it was going to work or not, but we were several million dollars into development. And we put it on the floor in the year 2000, and hmm. it worked. Hmm. Um, and at that point, Oakland started picking itself up off the mat and getting back in the game. Okay. Well, um, We'll, we'll get back to that because I think that was kind of that was a, a real inflection point in the story, I think. Uh, so I want to go back to so you're growing up in in hot springs, finally make your way into the track, fall into the job maybe to some extent, but kind of walk us through what that journey looked like uh, early on. Well, early on, I, I, I teach a class at Oklahoma management class. Um, for some of our new supervisors and managers. And, and I tell them my, my first true introduction to Oakland, being the, the wimpiest kid in the class, I finally get in. Uh, I'm so excited. Of course, the next, you know, rite of passage is to make a bet. And I go up to the mutual window to make a bet, and they won't even take my money. They say, get out of here, kid. And I do that window after window, and nobody will take my bet. And I guess I finally found a mutual clerk who was nearsighted because he took my bet, and I won. And it was a horse named Tudor something. And I think I won like $14, which was total blind luck, but for you know a kid like me, 14 bucks was a lot of money. And then I went back to cash. Well, they wouldn't cash it for me because I wasn't old enough to be betting. I don't know how long the ticket's good for. I mean, I figure if they run another race, maybe I'm out of luck that I won't get my money. I am standing there. It's a busy Saturday. Uh, I'm Doogie Hauser. I think I have tears rolling down my cheeks. And a nice lady says, are you okay? And I said, no, I am not. 
I have a winning ticket on the last race. I think it's getting ready to expire, and they won't cash it. They say I'm not old enough. But they sold me the ticket. And she said, well, that's not fair. She said, I'm getting ready to go cash. Do you want me to cash it for you? And I said, that would be great. I never saw her again. So my introduction to Oaklawn is I was able to sneak in underage, snuck in, made a bet, won the bet, got conned, and that was my introduction to <laughs> What an entry. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Well, how'd you end up working at Oaklawn originally? Well, uh, oddly enough, in high school, I, I worked at nights through high school for the local newspaper, the mm-hmm. Sentinel Record. And, of course, the racing season was a huge season in Hot Springs for the newspaper. So I actually would run back in those days you know, run things out to the track, get photographs, run them back to the newspaper, uh, help set the stories that night and put them out in the morning. So I had some familiarity. But uh, when we got out of college, and I say we, it was Linda who became my wife, and I wanted to get married. Um, We each had an opportunity to pursue uh, an advanced degree, but hers was at SMU and mine was at Vanderbilt. and her dad made it very clear if we got married, I could start paying for everything, and I couldn't. Uh, so we came up with a plan that uh, she would go get her master's at SMU in uh, English literature, and I would wait a couple of three years, make a couple of dollars, and then go to Vanderbilt. And Vanderbilt was very accommodating. They said, we will hold your place And when you get here, we will help your wife find a job in the Nashville school system. And I thought it was a great plan. All of my professors at Hendricks told me I was making a serious mistake because they said, after you've worked a couple of three years and made a couple of bucks, you won't go back. Hmm. And I said, you don't know the sort of willpower I have. And I can now tell you, 50 years later, Every one of them was correct. (laughs) And I know that resonates with you because you did the exact thing. You went and worked for a while, and then you went back and got your master's and your Ph.D. So as I'm sitting here, I now realize you got a heck of a lot more willpower than I had. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Uh, But during that time that I was trying to make a couple of dollars, we did get married. My wife started teaching in the Hot Springs school system, and I... I was a tennis player, not a very good one, but I played tennis, and I saw this nice older gentleman around the tennis courts a time or two, and I went up to him and introduced myself, and I said, hey, you, you, know, you want to play a game? And, and he said, yeah, I'd love to. So we did. His name was W.T. Bishop. It turned mm-hmm. out he was the general manager of Oaklawn. Oaklawn had recruited him from Kentucky. Uh, extremely well-known in American racing. And we just became friends, and he invited my wife and I over to dinner to to meet his wife, Dottie, so we had a bit of a social interaction. And then he called me one day out of the blue and said, why don't you come to work for us? And I, it, it was a surreal meeting. Everybody called him Bish, and I said, well, one thing is I don't know anything about horse racing. And he said, well, everybody starts out at that point. But, you know, if you're capable of learning, you might like it. 
And we might like you. I went and talked to my good friend who was attorney in Hot Springs, Clay Ferrar, passed away a couple of years ago. And I said, Clay, what should I do? I mean, I'm trying to get to Vanderbilt. I'm, I'm not trying to work at the racetrack. And he said, you got to try it. And um, Linda was not in favor of it. And he went and talked to Linda, and he said, you've got to let him try it. It might lead to something, and if it doesn't, go on over to Vanderbilt. So Mr. Bishop and I shook hands on a six-month agreement, hmm. one racing season. And he said, that'll give you enough time to see if you like it and um, give us enough time to see if we like you. And that was, you know, golly, 45 years ago. Hmm. So it did work out. Um, about six or seven years later, Mr. Bishop died unexpectedly. And I tell everyone, uh, Oakland was a much smaller staff back then since I was the only one who knew where the keys were. They made me general manager hmm. and uh, been there ever since. Wow. Yeah. Total accidental career. Nobody starts out to work at a racetrack. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's a very interesting place to spend those years. You know, maybe tell us a little bit about kind of behind the scenes. um, What all all does, one, I guess, managing that type of facility and enterprise entail? What are all the different pieces of the operation? Well, interestingly enough, uh, it is – the oldest professional sports franchise in America owned by the same owners, Mm -hmm. Um, which is quite an heritage uh, to begin with. But it's also iconic in Arkansas, uh, seemingly more so with each passing day. Back when I started, it was a major racing center, and that's what we thought our future would always be. Uh, You think this will never change. These are the good times. They'll always be the good times. Um, And then you look up one day, and it's not the good times. You know, the old saying is, one day a rooster, the next day a feather duster. That was us. Um, But from a management standpoint, it evolved drastically. We went from being a basically a one-trick pony, no pun intended, a thoroughbred racing center, and then we had to buy out our food and beverage caterer, but mm-hmm. we did that in 2000. So then we got into the food and beverage business. Mm-hmm. We then, uh, with simulcasting, basically to some extent got into the technology business mm-hmm. because we were beaming our signal by satellite to various places in North America and catching signals, merging the money, that became an entirely new business that nobody had been in. There wasn't a manual to go by. And then when we came up with instant racing, uh, there had never been a product like that. Um, we got a patent on it and, and put it in play at Oakline, and we had to figure that, that out as well. So we internally, we just had a lot of things going on. Mm-hmm. Externally, we're one of the most regulated industries in Arkansas, Mm-hmm. And Arkansas, you know, being a small state, um, politics is a very real part of what we did and still do. And then on the other side of the equation are the people who own and race the horses, mm-hmm. the John Ed Anthony's and the Frank Fletcher's. Um, 
and the interaction with them. Now you're now you're talking about the sports angle, um, and making that interesting, keeping it fair, uh, making it a challenge, and giving away a ton of money. So there are you know, certain challenges with that, and then there's the uh, customer. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know the old saying with racing: it's the only sport where the competitors are in the grandstand because it's paramutual. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm betting, but if I win, I get your money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, it, that's that's an entirely different dimension. Throw in the fact that we're in a small town and on a big Saturday we need 1,500 employees, mm-hmm. and that is enough challenge in and of itself. Instant racing worked so well that it led to what was called electronic games of skill, Legislature let us do that starting in 2005, and then in, I guess it was 2018, uh, there was an amendment on the ballot to allow us to become a full casino, and immediately that put us in the hotel business, the Mm -hmm. spa business, the convention business. Uh, There aren't many businesses we're not in right now when Mm -hmm. it comes to tourism and hospitality. Mm -hmm. It's become quite a a center. for sports, for entertainment, for food and beverage, for meetings, for conventions, the spa. It's a, it's the only true racing and gaming resort in North America. So we're still making it up as we go along. Well, quite a ways from uh, just being the guy that had the key or knew where the key was uh, to, to what Oakland looks like today. Well, it, it's... Uh, I regret that Mr. Bishop still isn't around. Mm. I regret that Charles Sella died in 2017 because he had, Louis Sella's dad, he had been president of Oakland for 50 years, and basically everything we had worked for, he got us to the one-yard line, Mm. and then he died. Mm -hmm. So he hasn't seen the hotel. He didn't see the spa and the meeting rooms. He didn't see us giving away a million dollars a day in purse money. Uh, when we open up in three weeks, two and a half weeks, it's it's the richest racing season in North America right now. And who would have thought that back in the 1990s when everybody was predicting we were going to go out of business? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I regret that a lot of the people that helped us get to this point didn't stay around to see it. You know, one thing I find intriguing about the story, particularly, you know, we we're talking about the inflection point, uh, was that the the innovation was related to technology, and you don't necessarily have a technology background, but somehow you saw technology as as the key to the innovation. Is that is that fair? It is, but America was changing. Mm-hmm. I mean, you had the Nintendo generation growing up, and and uh, what America was consuming and wanted to consume is not what we were selling. So we had to change. The first significant change was simulcasting. Uh, We had all beamed a race or two to another track, and they would wager on that race there, like the Kentucky Derby. But we wanted to do an entire racing season, if you will. And the key to that, uh, we felt, is if you were standing at Oaklawn and betting on a race in Chicago, you needed to be in their wagering pool where you would be in a, in a pool with the thousands 
of other customers and not in a pool at Oaklawn mm. with a very limited number. And then coming up with a way to make that happen was a challenge. We sat down with the, uh, it's called the Totalizator Company. It's all of our wagers are processed by an independent company through a totalizator, uh, fancy name for a computer. But uh, being able to do that across state lines and being able to catch their signal in making it happen simultaneously uh, became the real challenge. We sat down with probably Southwestern Bell at the time, might have been AT&T. I invited them to a meeting. We had the totalizator company. We told them what we wanted to do. Um, they worked on it and came back, and they said, we've got it. And I said, great. How's it going to work? And they said, well, you walk up to the window at Oaklawn, and you say, give me $2 on the three horse. And then seven seconds later, you get a ticket. And I said, that'll never work. You can't – people are lined up behind me. That, that just – you can't have a seven-second pause. And they said, well, we're, we're sending the bet electronically up to a satellite. This is relatively new for satellites even. And then we're going to beam it down to Chicago where they will catch it and they will process it in their uh, parimutuel system there. And then they will shoot it back up to the satellite, catch it at Oakline, and confirm you have a bet. And I said, it just won't work. So... We were thinking high-tech. The way we resolved it is we basically ran a phone line from Hot Springs to Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> so it wasn't quite the technology there that everybody thought it was. It was a dedicated phone line from Hot Springs, Arkansas to Chicago. And each day we prayed that Farmer Jones wouldn't accidentally, with his backhoe, cut this phone line because we would flat be out of business. Now, it did get more sophisticated as time went on, but that is how simulcasting in America got started. How interesting. So not as high-tech as you would think, yeah. uh, running cable. Uh, instant racing was different. Instant racing, I felt strongly that we had to have an electronic wagering product to compete with Mississippi, Missouri, Louisiana, and Oklahoma. Um, the problem is... The Constitution in Arkansas said there can be no games of chance. Well, a slot machine is chance. Mm -hmm. um, roulette is total chance. So we were stopped before we could even think about going down that path. Um, but we were allowed to have parimutuel wagering on racing. And it it occurred to me perhaps there was a way we could make that look and sound and feel and play like a slot machine. Um, and I fiddled with this idea for a couple of years. Uh, actually went out and, and bought a couple of textbooks on statistics and probability, wishing at the time that I'd paid more attention in college when I took <laughs> those courses. Um, but actually came up with an idea, and this is a cute story. So I, two things. Gaming was, the expansion of gaming in America was brand new in the 90s. Brand new. Um, up until then, it, it had basically only been in Atlantic City and Nevada. So I started tracking 
in keeping um, data on the expansion of gaming in America. Nobody else was at that time. It was me and a, an economist at the University of Kentucky called, I think his name was Richard Thalheimer. And so I was keeping up with it, but I, I wasn't translating that into what can we do at Oakland. And then that probably was the genesis for the idea of to see if there was a way to take parimutuel wagering and make it into a slot-like experience. Well, I had actually, since I was tracking gaming in America and uh, spreading some of that information around, I was, I was actually getting to speak at some conferences. And I had, there was an organization called Nickel G's, which was the National Association of Legislators from Gaming States. And I spoke to them a time or two. Uh, and then when I had this idea, I invited three companies to come to my office, three national companies, so I could explain my idea, what I wanted to do with historic racing. And all three came. I had met them at various conferences. One was IGT, the huge gaming company. Uh, one was uh, American Totalizator, which we did business with. And I have forgotten the other one. Uh, but they came to Oakland one at a time. This is a true story. One at a time, I explained my idea, what a great idea this was and how successful it would be. And one at a time, they told me it was the dumbest idea they had ever heard of, that a hundred people have tried to make an electronic game out of instant racing and uh, out, of, out of paramutual racing. And they had all failed. And they said, we can't believe we flew all the way across the country to hear such a stupid idea. <laughs> and they all laughed. And I crawled under my desk for about a week and just really was so embarrassed. But then I got to thinking about it. And I said, you know, is it a bad idea or did you do a bad, did you do a bad way of, of talking about it? Maybe the failure was how you presented it, not the idea. So I went to CJRW here in Little Rock, uh, which was our ad agency, and I told them I needed an artist. Hmm. And they had to sign a non-disclosure agreement, and they did, and they gave me an artist. And I drew up a bunch of, I, the artist drew up a bunch of poster boards of how this might work. And I invited the three companies to come back. It took us about a year. Two of them wouldn't come back. They said, please, just lose my number. Quit calling me. <laughs> The third one came back, and I said, listen, I listened to what you said when you were here, and, and we've tweaked it, and I made some changes. And I started pulling out my you know, poster boards, uh, and I said, this is what it would look like, and this is how it would work, and here's the central processing units and all of that. And the gentleman said, you know, you may have something now. Hmm. Well, actually, we hadn't changed a thing. It, hmm. it, it's the old saying, a picture is worth a thousand words. Yeah. So the failure was mine the first time in how I presented it, not in the idea. And he offered to put together a think tank in Baltimore hmm. with uh, some programmers, a mathematician, a couple of regulators. And we went up and, and made a presentation to this group. Uh, we walked in the room about 6 o'clock that night. I had all my poster boards and took the entire group through the presentation and there was total silence. And I said, 
oh my, I think I've done it again, except now I can't get under the desk. I'm stuck here. And there was a gentleman there from MIT, a math guy. And someone said, you know, this really won't work. And he said, I think it might. And he threw out an idea or two. And the room just lit up. We worked for 36 hours straight. Really? 36 hours straight. We were actually on a, a place called Parsons Island, which is out in the Chesapeake Bay. It's an old hunting camp or something. Um, and when we got done and we said, look, we think we've got something. We're going to have to get a patent. We have to raise venture capital to get it going. Uh, what are we going to call it? And so since several of the guys were old hippies and there was a group called the Parsons Island Project, I think back in the 70s, we said we're going to call it the Parsons Island Project for right now, PIP. And I tell people at Oakland today, one of these days you'll be digging in an old file and you'll find a PIP file. Hmm. That was us, <laughs> the Parsons Island Project. Hmm. And that's how it got going. We came back and applied for a patent, got it. And then we had to come up with, with money to see if this would work. Uh, I ended up working with a, a PhD probabilist in hmm. Louisiana, and I didn't even know there was such a thing. Hmm. And he quickly said, well, you need a, a game designer, and the guy you want is in Montana. And I flew up there, I think it was on an Easter Sunday, and there's a reason that people live in Montana. It's because they don't want to be around any other people. Uh, and we picked him up, hired him as a consultant. But he just didn't like people. But he was very good at what he did. But it was a very strained relationship. Uh, but he got us going. Mm -hmm. So between the Ph.D. probabilist in Louisiana and this game designer in Montana, we launched and it worked. How interesting! What a what a story of uh, I don't know, just innovative thinking, a bit of an entrepreneurial spirit, probably some uh, you know you just had to figure out a way to survive, all mixed in one. Well, we had to come back. We had to get we had to get regulatory approval mm -hmm. um, in Arkansas because of the Freedom of Information laws. Two racing commissioners cannot meet together at the same time uh, and talk about you know what should come before the commission. So we built a prototype, which we called Big Bertha, because it was not pretty and it was big. Uh, and so I, I would put it in the back of my SUV and drive it to each of the racing commissioners so I could show them what we were talking about, because if they weren't going to approve it, mm -hmm. we couldn't move forward. The chairman of the racing commission was Cecil Alexander, and they realized the dire straits that Oakland was in, and they they all said, you've got to proceed. Hmm. But then we had to talk with the horsemen. Hmm. Um, same thing. We met with a gentleman named Bill Wamsley. Used to be in the Senate, retired now. He was head of the horsemen's organization, and a really fine gentleman. And I remember his words. I showed it to Bill, and, and he said, I don't know that this is going to work, but he said, I don't see where you have any choice because if you don't come up with something, Oakland's going out of business. Mm. And 
with that sort of encouragement, we proceeded. A little bit of humor. We put it on the floor on January 1st, 2000. And we invited a lot of customers in to play it. And they were having a great time. I, all day, I'd go up there, and everybody was just having a wonderful time. And I said, man, this is going great. I'm just, I'm so excited. At the end of the day, I went up to our accounting department to see how we'd done. We lost $10,000. Everybody was winning. That's why everybody was having a wonderful. <laughs> I had made a tiny little mistake in one of my computations that we had to correct. But, yeah, I mean, I'd play it all day long, too. <laughs> you know, you put in a dollar, get back a dollar twenty. This is great. Mm. But we did uh, launch it like that and never look back. Mm. Well, Eric, quite a quite a career and story uh, at Oaklawn in Arkansas, and so maybe I'll I'll conclude. I've got a question for you. Just as you process what it means to be in the Arkansas Business Hall of Fame, uh, what what does it mean? I guess for you to spend your career at Oaklawn in Arkansas and then to be a part of this institution, the Arkansas Business Hall of Fame? Well, I've looked at the names of the previous inductees, and there's something seriously wrong with this picture. I mean, I you know, you, you don't put the name Sam Walton and Eric Jackson side by side. I'm sorry, you just don't. Uh, so I haven't completely processed this even now. I keep thinking this is a dream and I'm going to wake up and it didn't happen, or you're going to call me and say, Eric, we've made a terrible mistake. <laughs> <laughs> but it is what it is. I, I could never have imagined. Uh, but the real, the real pleasure for me is seeing what Oakland has become. And when you look behind the curtain, seeing the faces and the names of all the people that helped us get to this point, uh, thousands of employees over the years, but a dozen key employees that kept the faith in the 1990s and then hopped on for the ride that we had in the 00s and the 10s. And that to me is, that has been the greatest satisfaction of my career. Hmm. And uh, the fact that it all worked, you know, there's a thin line between success and failure, and we, we we're fortunate on this. Well, I certainly agree. And once again, congratulations. I really look forward to the evening of Friday, February the 16th, and getting to celebrate you and the other inductees. Looking forward to it. And uh, I still think between now and then I might wake up and the whole thing was a dream. Uh, I, I don't think that'll be true. <laughs> I'll see you then. On behalf of the Walton College, thank you for joining us for this captivating conversation. To stay connected and never miss an episode, simply search for Be Epic on your preferred podcast service.